is a trend that's worth noting among millennials today, millennials being the generation that is coming to adulthood here in the early part of the 21st century. This trend is scores are leaving behind what we might refer to as traditional religion in favor of practices in witchcraft and astrology. Um, that's a uh, spiritual mediums and such, uh, horoscopes, astrology. It's a $2 billion a year industry. $2 billion. Um, for many, in fact, I, there's one statistic I read a survey just this past week that over, over half of, of folks in that generation would say that um, astrology, not astronomy, astrology is actually a science. That when conversation is taking place and folks are bumping up into one another at a, some function and you know, introductions are being made, that it's, it's not so much, you know, where you're from and what you do, but it's a science. And meaning that with all seriousness and, 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 and earnestness. Uh, some of you may be wondering, even at this moment, my goodness, what in the world is driving that? What's, what's, what's behind that? And we've got to be honest and, and acknowledge the hard facts. It's not just youthful rebellion. It's not just that. A lot of it has to do with hypocrisy and scandal in the church. And a perceived irrelevancy of the message of the, of the scriptures. And yet at the same time, because God has made us all as spiritual beings, hardwired with spiritual longing and hunger and thirst to know Him, that longing cannot be completely suppressed. You push it down, direct it away from its right expressions, it will still come out in all kinds of other ways. Hence these other outlets. That's really what's going on. Here this week, uh, on the other side of Easter, post-Easter, and for the, this week and next week, the, the, the plan is for us to go back and revisit those events, those events surrounding that, that first Easter. And today, we're actually going to be stopping and looking at a, one particular individual that is a key figure in all of that, Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate... And coupled with that, if you can believe this, but it, it, it's certainly right to do so when you look at John's Gospel, Pontius Pilate and our longing for truth, our longing to know the one true living God and the one way that we can know Him. If you have your Bible, I ask you to turn with me to John's Gospel, John 18, beginning in verse 28. This is the fourth of the four, the fourth of the four Gospels that we have. Matthew, Matthew Mark, Luke, John. Matthew, Mark, Luke and, and John. Uh, that's the fourth book of the New Testament. Like I said, John 18, beginning in verse 28. We're going to read on through into chapter 19, verse 16. So it's a bit. It's a bit. Uh, we need to look at And it's, it's Pilate's role in the trial of Jesus. And it is quite telling. Hear another word of God. <clears throat> Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. 
Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. But Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And the chief priests and the officers saw him. They cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Oh, we need to pray. Let's do that now. Lord, this is a text that we have, a text like this from the other Gospels, been in just in, in recent days. For many of us, there are familiar words. So much here. So very much here. And we have just, just a little bit of time. And we ask for your help. We ask that you would indeed be our, our teacher. Instruct us. Um, give us understanding. Give us wisdom. Give us insight. 
Move within the mind, move within the heart. Change us at the, at the deepest level. Such that every single one of us, in how we think and what we speak and what we do, how we live, how we plan, how we go about the little things and the big things, would not be the same as it was when we came in. And that can only happen by the, the movement of your spirit. And so we, we ask for that now. We pray in your name. Amen. Some of you may have seen the news article just a few weeks ago. Uh, the headline, one article, the way of reporting it I saw, went like this. Legendary lost Civil War gold may have been found in Pennsylvania. I don't know how many of you saw that. It's a very interesting story. Um, it seems that, as far as the, the, the story goes, the accounts go way back, way, way back, uh, that, a, that a wagon train, and one particular wagon in particular, uh, on its way from Wheeling, West Virginia, with a cache of gold bars, uh, was ambushed by Confederate soldiers, and somehow in the melee of everything, of what happened, the, the, the gold was lost on its way to the Philadelphia Mint, 1863. But some treasure hunters have been, been working for years trying to locate this thing, and now, right now, the FBI is on site in a Pennsylvania state forest digging, or at least overseeing the dig, to discern is it there. Metal detectors are picking up, they're pinging a lot. Something's there. Is it true? Is that what it is? It's a very interesting story. A lot of money is on the line, millions of dollars depending on what the count is. Was it 26 bars, 52 bars, depending on the record? That begs some questions, though, this story does. Is it true? That's one. I mean, if it is, we might want to... A road trip. Let's go to, you know, get our shovels. Um, is it true? Is it actually there? That's certainly one question. But there's another question. How could this have happened? Let's just assume, okay, how could this have happened? I mean, okay, I know it's a time of war, 1863. The Union Army is stretched. I've got that. But surely you, you attach enough sentries recognizing that, you know, a wagon train with millions of dollars of gold bars, you just don't send out there. How would this have happened? How would they have ambushed? And, and, and for that matter, what about the witnesses? How is it that it's lost? I mean, just think not just now, but back then then in the near history right after that how do the events how do those events play out such that it's just lost it's just misplaced we don't know where the gold went how does that happen isn't treasure meant to be treasured isn't treasure meant to be treasured isn't isn't it meant to be protected isn't it meant to be held held safe kept safe surely it is just beg some questions this text takes us in thinking about a different, completely different other kind of treasure, but yet one that is meant to be treasured, one that is meant to be held, one that is meant to be kept. But it's, this treasure is not one that can be counted, uh, but can be known. It is not one that can be touched, but can be embraced. And, and given all of the, the darkness and confusion of our age and the yearning and waywardness of our hearts, we understand anything about what this treasure entails, this is one we should treasure and hold, and hold indeed. Uh, this trial of Jesus before Pilate, there's a lot of different things that you can learn here in this. 
But certainly amidst all of that, we can pick up on this, and it's simply this. God has made clear the truth of himself in Christ. God has made clear the truth of himself in Christ, and we must hold to that. God has made true, in Christ, God has made true, has made clear the truth of himself in Christ. We need to hold to that. Now, the necessity of that, the reality of that, comes out in, in, in three different ways here. First, just, and it's there in your outline, first, just in the, the revelation of truth, just what it is. And there were, therein we see the treasure and, and, and the necessity therein of, of having and holding. The, 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 uh, the revelation of the truth, then tragically, the rejection of the truth, and you see sort of in the opposite way, the, the necessity of the having and holding. And then finally, with all that, now then when that collapses, then how do we think about, how do we go about the restoration of truth? So, revelation, rejection, restoration of the truth. The truth is found in Christ. So let's look at these in turn. First, the revelation of truth. This is getting at, what is it? What are we talking about? Why is it worth having? Why is it worth holding? What makes this treasure worth treasuring? Here we need to think about, first, the incarnation. And we need to think about, what John means in his gospel, almost in every case, when he uses this word that we translate in English, truth, in almost every case, what does he mean? He means something so far beyond just a verbal statement, a proposition, an assertion, uh, an axiom of some kind. He means so much more than that in almost every case when John uses that word in his gospel. We need to kind of un- dig down and understand, well, what then does he mean? He means something beyond an assertion. He means an appearing. An appearing of a certain person. Keep your thumb there where we were at John 18, 19. Go back to the very beginning of John's gospel. I'm going to look at three different texts in the next few minutes in John that should help us see what does he mean and what are the implications when John starts talking about truth. John 1.14 is certainly is, is the way where to begin. John 1.14, we read, And the Word became flesh. This is in the prologue. It sets the stage for everything else that comes in John's gospel. And the Word became flesh. He's talking about Jesus here, the incarnation. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the, of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the, is the incarnation, the enfleshment of God. This is what C.S. Lewis refers to in his book, Miracles, as the grand miracle. The miracle of the miracles. In Jesus, now think with me. This is, I, if you're a churched individual, I know this might, you're just kind of like going right on by you. But, but just pretend for a moment you've never heard this. And think with me what a stunning assertion this is. That in Jesus of Nazareth, we see God as he is. We see God as he is because he's God in the flesh. It's the grand miracle, it's the miracle of miracles. Well, if, if that's the case, if the incarnation is true, it has some implications. How could it not? Right? 
I mean, if that, I mean, a big deal like that, how could it not have repercussions? How could it not have aftershocks? How could it not have ripples into everything in terms of all of life? It would have to. It would have to have implications. Well, I just want to run it too. And, and the first one being, there is a, if, if, if Jesus is in fact who he says he is, there is a flourishing in following him. John 8. If Jesus is, in fact, who he says he is, there must then be a flourishing in following him. John 8, verses 31 and 32. Again, this idea of truth. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, I know that last clause is one that you hear all the time. The truth will set you free. And it's taken completely out of context in almost you know, like 99% of the cases in which we heard there that line. Jesus is the originator of the phrase. And he means something very specific when he speaks what he does is recorded for us in John 8. And what he's saying here is, is, is simple but profound. He is saying as we abide in him, as we trust him, as we obey him, we then come to know him. We find ourselves experiencing the vibrancy and the wonder of a living relationship with him, something we were made for, a relationship with the living God. And as we find ourselves in that and live in that, comes freedom and flourishing because what? We were made for it, right? We were made for it. You will know the truth, in that sense, him, Jesus, living with him, following him, trusting him, and that truth, he will set you free. That's what that means. That's what that's about. So there is a flourishing. Jesus as the truth, the, the, the manifestation of God. Jesus as the truth, the revelation of God. There's a flourishing in following him, but not just that. If indeed, if indeed, he is who he says he is, there's a flourishing in following him, but there's also another implication. That's a big one. Here's another one. Not just a flourishing and following him, but the necessity of choosing him. The necessity of choosing him. Go with me to John 14. If all this be the case, this has to follow. John 14, verse 6. And Jesus just, he just says it. He just says it. He's, he, he's not qualifying it. Uh, he, he's just saying it. He's just assuming it. John 14, verse, verse 6, in a conversation with Thomas. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You have the flourishing and following him, if indeed he is who he says he is, but also the necessity of choosing him, if indeed he is who he says he is. That just stands to reason. It stands to reason. The one flows from the other. Jesus has to be. Then, as the manifestation of the living God in the flesh, he is our only hope. He is our only hope. There's none other. There's none other. He is our only hope. This is what John means, coming back to. Okay, so truth. The revelation of truth. Jesus as the living manifestation, the revelation of God in the flesh. This is what John means when he's using the language of truth in his gospel. The revelation of God, the revelation of truth. Some of you may not be uh, familiar with the old TV series Lost in Space. 
Uh, Others of you may know that actually that Netflix is doing a reboot. Uh, It's coming out later this week, I think, actually. The the premise is the same, the the old and the new. It's basically Space Family Robinson. Okay? I mean, seriously, you've got this family, this well, the crew, almost all the family, and and they they go off into space, and they're knocked off course, right? And, And so they're looking for a place to land, looking for a place to live. Now, I want you to just stay with me here. Um, imagine you're a member of the crew and you're looking at the charts and you're looking at the surveys that have been done of the system in which your, your craft is, is flying and searching. And you know, based on, on what you've discovered, what's out there, that there's one planet, there's one planet that will support life. Only one. Only one. Others come close Atmosphere's not right, land's not right, gravity's not right, food's not right, whatever. There's only one. That's where you need to land. Now, here's my question. How does that land on you, what I just said? Jesus as our one hope. Not a hope, not a good hope. Our one hope. How does that land on you? For many, and I've spoken to some, perhaps some of you have too, that, that's, that the response you get is rage. Uh, for others, it's relief. My God, finally, I know. Polar opposites. For others, it's somewhere in the middle. A pull but a sense of puzzlement at the same time. How does it land on you this morning? I would plead with you, don't dismiss this. Process this. Think about this. Wrestle with it. In Christ, God has made clear the truth of himself. We need to hold to that. That takes us to the second point. Uh, the, the, the negative side of that, the, the negative image of that, because, okay, so we have the revelation of truth, and everything that we just saw in John's gospel in terms of Jesus as the truth, as the revelation of truth, as God in the flesh, all of that, that's the atmosphere in which this whole text breathes, in which it exists. That's the world in which the events that we read of in John eighteen nineteen take place. Jesus, standing there on trial, is the very one that we've just been talking about. That's the like, big cosmic context of what's going on here in, in the flow of these events. But let's just talk about, about the historical. Kind of, you know, 10,000 feet, that's what that is. Now let's come down to like 10 feet above, okay? Let's just, think, just talk about hi- historical context, the, the immediacy of what's going on, because that informs also what's happening. What do we know of Pontius Pilate? We actually know a lot about Pontius Pilate. Um, we, we know from the gospel writers quite a bit about him. This is certainly is pertaining to Jesus' trial. But from other ancient sources, Jewish and Roman, we know a lot about him as well, and, and at least his, his career as a governor in Judea. We also, archaeologists found in Caesarea, 1961, an inscription with Pilate's name on it from that time and his exact title. Okay. We know a lot about this man. We know that he served as governor of Judea from 26 to 36 A.D. 
we know that from the very start, that was a pretty lengthy but tumultuous tenure there as governor of Judea. Within months, he was embroiled in the controversy regarding the construction of an aqueduct that led to a riot. Years after that, he refused to remove the, the, the uh, standards of his soldiers that had this pagan image on it, and, and that led to another riot. In 36 AD, his career there comes to an end because of atrocities committed against the Samaritans up north, and he's recalled back to Rome. All this is coming into play, the tensions and his experience and all of that. But here's one big thing that's really well worth noting. Uh, a gen- his connection to a gentleman by the name of Alias Sejanus. Alias Sejanus was a, a, a Roman consul who was the one responsible for Pilate getting his appointment as governor in, in Judea. Okay? In 31 AD, 31 AD, Sejanus is put on, well, I don't know if he's put on trial, but he was found guilty in some way and executed because he was ensnared in a plot to overthrow Emperor Tiberius. Okay, think with me now. Politics. Pilate is associated with this treasonous rebel. The Emperor Tiberius knows this. Pilate's associations now. In addition to that, the Emperor has made very clear that from now on, Sejanus' anti-Jewish policies in Judea, as, as you know, communicated through, through Pilate, are to come to an end. That's 31 AD. That's about a year and a half before these events in 33 AD. All of that, I mentioned that the 10,000 foot context, you know, big picture, the air, the atmosphere, everything of, of this. But now we're talking about the immediate historical conduct, the things that are informing and shaping from a, the human level, Pilate's decisions. It's why when you, when you read through this text, you see him, his resistance, his reluctance to even get involved. You see he, the sense in which he's um, uh, uneasy about it. I don't know if you noticed it, but, but four times the man is, this is the governor of Judea, and he's like a ping pong ball. Four times going from the inner court to the outer court. Outer court to the inner court. And, and he's some, to some degree willing to engage with Jesus in conversation and dialogue, but at the same time, as this thing progresses, he's getting madder and madder and more bitter, and his true stripes are coming out, and, and his resentment of the, Ju- of the Jewish officials, which gets us to the verdict. From the start, Pilate's only concern with all of this is whether or not Jesus constitutes a threat to Roman rule. Very quickly, he ascertains, nope, we're good. And from that moment, he's trying to get Jesus off. But the mob won't have it. Stirred up by the, by the leaders, we've got a, a mob scene developing outside Pilate's headquarters. And with that in mind, and also the context, everything that I said a moment ago that's informing and shaping all of this, Pilate's reasoning is it would be far better for an innocent man to die than for the bloodshed, the bloodbath of a riot in the streets. Okay, that's his reasoning. What's behind all that? I mean, what's deeply? You peel back the layers. What's going on here? 
Well, it's in the question. You can see it in the question that he, one of the questions that he asked Jesus. And it's a terrifying question. John 18, verse 37, 38. John 18, verses 37, 38. Pilate said to Jesus, so you are a king. So are you a king? Excuse me. So are you a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? You need to recognize what Pilate means when he says this. What Pilate means in that moment is claims of absolute reality are irrelevant. They have no bearing on this process, on these procedures, truth and claims of truth, and all these abstract issues are ridiculous and impractical. Pilate cares nothing for absolutes. Do you understand? The man had no anchor. He had no moorings. He had no objective compass. He can't rule justly. All he can do is rule by expediency and practicality in terms of the equations as to how he weighs things in the moment. And that's the terrifying place that this brings us to in our day as well. And for all of us here this morning, we've got to reckon with this, the tragedy of the rejection of Jesus as the truth and where it takes us. See, our answer to that question, what is truth, right, makes a tremendous amount of difference. It makes every difference. Every difference in the world as far as how we will live. How we answer that question, what is truth? And really pushing harder, who is truth? Who is truth? If we understand that Jesus is God in the flesh, he is the revelation, he is the manifestation of the one true living God, the, the, the repercussions of that, the implications of the the applications of that in our day-to-day lives will be we will not collapse under the pressures that we face. We will not bend in the gale force winds that threaten to topple us. We will not compromise and shave and shade what we say based on the circumstances, no matter the cost. You know why? Because we know who the truth is. And it's not based on our personal preferences or circumstances. It's in a person, the living Christ, Jesus. In Christ, God has made clear, God has made clear the truth of himself. We must hold to that. Now that takes me to the last point. Talked about the revelation of truth, what it is, who it is. We've talked about the tragedy of the rejection of truth and what the implications of that are. But now, what if, what if, what if you've come full circle and you realize, oh my Lord, I don't want to live this way anymore. I don't want to go there anymore. I don't want to, I, I, I see that in myself. What do you do? 
Well, first you have to recognize what's the real problem. And by the real problem, what I mean is, is this, recognizing first the differences between the ugly fruit in our life and the deeper root that's pushing that up. Now, by the, the, the fruit, the ugly fruit, what I mean is that our, what we're thinking, what we're saying, and what we're doing, the externals, the observable stuff, um, in many cases, excuse me, in many sources, many um, commentators and historians will say that for Pilate, as an example, for Pilate, the ugly fruit in his life was his political ambition. The man was all about his career. And that's why we see him uh, so antagonistic when that's threatened, right? That's why we see him willing to cut the corners that he is when he feels like it's threatened. It's under, he's, that pursuit is under assault. But what's beneath that? Why is Pilate so politically ambitious? Why is he given towards the pursuit of a career and making a name for himself and all of this? Well, one of several possibilities, or maybe a mix of those possibilities, a desire for control, a love of power, or comfort and ease, or maybe the approval an adulation of some other individual off stage that we're not even told about. Some something is at work deeply, is my point. Down deep in the roots of the man's life, there's some deep stuff going on that's bringing forth this nasty, ugly fruit. And to get anywhere with this, for him or for any of us, he's gone, now it's us. We've got to begin there, recognizing that the ugly fruit in our lives has deep root. Okay, how do you dislodge the roots? How do we get free? Go back to lost in space, that image. I'm going to mix my metaphors, so stay with me. Think with me about orbits. And imagine, if you will, the human heart... Every one of our hearts, every human heart is in orbit around something. It's being controlled and it's spinning around in orbit something. How, and in Pilate's case, it was a dead moon. That's really the way it is for all of us outside of Jesus. It's a dead moon. There's no life there. How do you break orbit? How can you be moved from orbiting this dead moon to this living planet, this place of life and flourishing over here? How? You know, going with the orbital analogy, it has to be something bigger. It has to be something stronger. It has to have a stronger pull on the heart to pull you from this orbit to that one. It has to have more mass. It has to be weightier. It has to have more glory. It has to be Jesus. It has to be Jesus. A, a, a sense of, a feeling sense of who he is. Beginning with understanding in the mind and moving into the heart. Freeing the heart to move from one orbit to the one we were made for. That's the only way. It's the, the absolutely the only And you can get a sense of the real solution to our hidden deep problem you get a sense of that even in the text. The beauty, the weightiness, the glory of Jesus. Just think with me for a minute. Just in the, the verses we read a few moments ago and the whole, the whole passage is, well, 
in the midst of all the chaos, John 18, 19, Jesus' trial, it just seems like the whole world has come apart. Who is standing in the middle of that chaos clearly in control? Who is the one calm in the storm? Who is the only one who's really in control of himself? And in addition to all of that, Jesus, on trial, is actually not concerned at all for himself. If you really read between the lines in his engagement with Pilate, he's concerned about Pilate. Does this begin to shift the orbit for you? Let me give you more. Just, just uh, verse 37, just the implications of what we see here. Then Pilate said to him, so you say that... Uh, you, uh, are you a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Who is this man? Where does he come from? He says he's born, but he comes into this world from somewhere else. Who is this man? Where is his origin? Uh, what is his identity? Who is this man? He is the king. What is his mission? Why has he come? to give himself, to live and die in our place. Specifically, when you think about Pilate, the just for the unjust. For all of us Pontius Pilates. The just for the unjust. You, we get a sense of this, a feeling sense of this, and you put your roots, I'm going to mix my metaphors, but you put your roots in that soil, it'll bear forth completely new fruit. Shift the metaphor, it'll break your orbit from the lifeless moon to the living Jesus. This is what Thomas Chalmers, your quotes and notes, this is what Thomas Chalmers, the uh, great Scottish pastor, uh, wrote or spoke in his um, memorable sermon, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's the last quote on your, your insert there. But what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Or put more poetically, it's what Anne Steele meant in her beautiful hymn, just the one above that. The, thy lovely source of true delight, whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. The heart is pulled because of a greater glory, a greater power, a greater strength, a greater weight. And we have to, and we need, again, God is make clear, he's made clear the truth of himself in Christ. We have to hold to that. And we have to emphasize the fact that we have to hold to that. Why? Because we are so prone to forget and wander from that holding. You may be intellectually persuaded of everything I've said, of every song that we have sung, every reading that we have done this morning, the creeds we recited last weekend, you may be intellectually persuaded by all of that. You may be right on, right. Um, there is a God, and we as his creatures are, are to uh, give him, we recognize that we owe him our lives, our love, and our loyalty, and we know we fall so desperately short of all of that, and we can see the, the mess and carnage and wreckage we make of our lives that is, in this whole world because of that. We know there's nothing we can do to fix that. We need Jesus as the only one from the outside to come and say, you may be right on, dialed into all those things, intellectually persuaded, but personally wavering. Because of the pressure we're under all the time, 
to not hold to the fact that in Christ, God has shown Himself to be who He is. We can't abide by the cafeteria approach to spirituality. And what I mean by that is, is simply this. When you go through the cafeteria line and you're done, and you're looking down at your plate, what do you have in front of you? I don't mean like the food. I mean like, what is it? You know what it is? It's a reflection of your personal preferences. Which is why for most of us, there's not a lot of green on that plate. A lot of carbs, a lot of desserts. I've seen it. Men's night out. We've done cafeteria lines. <laughs> That's what comes out. The personal preferences. And what do you end up with? An imbalanced diet and wrecked health over time. My friends, when we are thinking about true spirituality, engagement with the true and living God, it is not the image of a cafeteria line. It is the image of a dinner invitation. Being called by a host to sit down at his table, to pull up the chair, sit down, and recognize that with this master chef who knows what we need far better than we could ever know, ours is but to take and eat what we are served. And what he is serving is the revelation of himself in Jesus. May we hold to that and rejoice in that. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Here on this first Sunday after Easter, thank you. Christ has risen. He has risen indeed. A real event in time and space with dramatic implications for our lives in time and space today. You are everything, O oh Lord Jesus, that you said you are. And we are just scratching the surface as to what that means. And we pray that you would press more fully, more completely, more deeply what all this means into our poor hard hearts. Oh, that our orbits would change. We know that you alone can do that. As you help us to see the one is of great glory, the greatest glory of all, you, yourself. We pray that you'd help us to know this and love you more for, for it and to really see the people around us and serve them well because of what we see of you. We pray in your name. Amen.